Welcome to Master the MRCS podcast. In today's episode, we will be looking at part two of the colorectal discussion covering polyps, colorectal cancer, anorectal anatomy, as well as anorectal pathology. Thank you very much for joining us. This episode is proudly sponsored by Medics Academy. I was hoping we could go on to talk about uh, polyp disease and if it's okay with you if we could start with familial adenomatous polyposis. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that uh, and what it what it is, what it, uh, how it's inherited? Yeah, um, so familial adenomatosis polyposis, so FAP for short, um, is a rare autosomal dominant condition due to a mutation in the APC gene on chromosome 5. It is characterized by multiple colorectal adenomatous polyps in the second and third decade of life um, and essentially is an accelerated adenoma initiation process. There is a 100% risk of developing colorectal cancer in untreated FAP. You can have extracolonic manifestations, so not just the adenomatous polyps. Um, in terms of the gene itself, the APG, APC gene, it is a tumor suppressant gene. When you get inactivating mutations in both alleles of the APC gene, this leads to the absence of the APC proteins and an accumulation of beta-catenin, leading to the activation of WNT signaling pathway, which controls cell growth. And um, are there different types of FAP or are they all, is it all the same disease really? So there are different forms of FAP, yes. So you have the classic form and the attenuated form. So the classic form of FAP, you will um, see sort of thousands of colonic adenomas, um, the clinical sort of Penetrance is 95% by age 35 with um, a malignancy risk of 100% in those who are untreated. The attenuated form of FAP um, has less colonic adenoma, so sort of in the range of tens to hundreds rather than thousands. And um, it, is it completely um, isolated to the colon or will we see uh, extracolonic manifestations as well? Yeah, so you can get extra colonic um, sort of polyps so in different parts of the G, uh, GI tract beyond the colon. So within the gastric fundus, um, within the duodenum, you can also get um, extra GI tract manifestations in the form of um, papillary thyroid cancer, a childhood hepatoblastoma, um, and CHRPE. Um, which is quite mouthful to say, but it stands for congenital hypertrophy of the retinal pigment epithelium. I think for the Part A exam, it's useful to know the um, variants of FAP, so that include Gardner syndrome and Turcot syndrome. And Gardner syndrome is essentially FAP plus osteomas plus of tissue tumors, so for example, sebaceous cysts, fibromas, and desmoid tumors. And Sikor syndrome is FAP plus brain tumors in the form of a medulloblastoma. 
Um, and so clearly the um, extra colonic features will need uh, addressing individually in, in each individual. But what about the, um, the colonic features when, when we're thinking about treatment and surgery for these patients? How would we treat colonic um, FAP? Um, so you would treat FAP quite aggressively because of its malignancy risk. So this will, for colonic FAP, that will be um, a total colectomy with an ileal rectal anastomosis or a panproctocolectomy with an aniliosomy or an um, ileal pouch in anastomosis. Um, and is there anything that we should be doing for populations? Should we be screening these patients? Should, should we be doing genetic testing for people? And who, who, how do we select who, um, who we should be screening if, if we should be screening? So yes, you would refer patients with FAP um, to be your local gen or regional uh, genetic unit. So screening um, would be advocated for at-risk individuals. So for example, if there's family history of very early colorectal cancer, um, you would offer genetic testing and one to two yearly one to two yearly colonoscopy um, starting from age of 12 um, once um, patients um, have a confirmed diagnosis of um, a mutation in their APC gene. Thank you so much. Um, and would we be able to talk a little bit about uh, another one of these conditions called Lynch syndrome or HNPCC um, and, and talk about that and how that is inherited? Yeah, so Lynch syndrome or HNPCC, that stands for hereditary non-polyposis um, coli. Um, it's also an autosomal dominant condition due to a germline mutation in the DNA mismatch repair genes. There are a number of genes implicated in Lynch syndrome. They include MSH2, MLH1, and so on. Um, as a disease itself, it's associated with microsatellite instability. There is, again, an increased lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer. Clinically, so of, um, of importance, and it's good to be aware of the Amsterdam criteria for the diagnosis of Lynch syndrome. And the Amsterdam criteria can be remembered as three to one. So three relatives um, within two successive generations and one of whom is a first degree relative. Um, that is the, the, the criteria that you need to fulfill um, from an to diagnose Lynch syndrome. Um, Lynch syndrome is also associated with increased risk of endometrial, stomach and ovarian cancer. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, would we be able to segue from um, polyposis disease to colorectal cancer, which of course is something that we think about when we're thinking about these um, these polyps and the risk, uh, that's what we're worried about. We're worried about the risk of uh, it developing into colorectal cancer. You've touched on that already. Um, could we talk a little bit more about colorectal cancer? It's quite a common cancer and something that we need to know quite well, I think, for the exam. Yeah, so colorectal cancer is the second commonest cause of cancer death in the UK. 45% um, of colorectal cancer occur in the rectum, so 25% in the sigmoid colon, 20% in the cecum, 
10% um, in the, the rest of the ascending transverse um, and descending colon. Um, 70 to 80% of colorectal cancer arise from polyps um, via the adenoma carcinoma sequence. Uh, and then we've touched on it a little bit already, but in terms of pathology, how do we sort of describe um, the, these polyps? So polyps are exophytic or sessile lesions, which are distinct from the colonic mucosa. Um, they can be neoplastic or non-neoplastic or benign or malignant. Is there any other way that we categorize them or um, different types of polyps? Um, the different types of colonic polyps, you can divide them into um, different groups. So you have adenomatous polyps, hyperplastic polyps, inflammatory pseudopolyps, hematomatous polyps, uh, and juvenile polyps. In terms of adenomatous polyps, um, this, they come from a neoplastic proliferation of the glands. Um, they can be further sort of subclassified depending on your growth pattern into tubular adenoma, tubular villus adenoma, and a villus adenoma. The villus adenoma out of the tree described has the highest rate of malignant transformation. So they can progress through the adenoma carcinoma sequence. In terms of just touching specifically on hematomatous polyps, and these are disordered growth of tissue, which are found native to the site of origin, and it's associated with the Pitsiega syndrome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and in terms of thinking about the difference, um, and we, we touched on it already, but um, talking about hyperplasia versus dysplasia, uh, when we're talking about polyps, um, it's important to understand the difference between these. Is that right? Yeah. So from a pathological, from a pathology and definition perspective, you do need to know the difference between um, the different terms like hyperplasia, hypertrophy, and dysplasia. So hyperplasia is um, increase in cell number, whereas hypertrophy is increase in cell size. And dysplasia is disordered cellular growth. So if you are asked in part A or part B of the exam, um, in terms of cellular features of dysplasia, you would see disorganized arrangement and increase in number of cells, uh, loss of cellular polarity, you may see cellular and nuclear pleomorphism, um, an increase in nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio and increase in mitotic activity. And um, we've spoken about some of the risk factors of colorectal cancer, of course, FAP, HNPCC, um, are there other risk factors that we should be, it should be on the tip of our tongue for the exam? Yeah, so in terms of thinking of risk factors of colorectal cancer, you can again divide this into modifier risk factors and non-modifier risk factors. So modifier risk factors would um, include alcohol consumption, um, diet, um, either low fiber, high fat diet, um, obesity, Non-modifiable factors are things like FAP, HNPCC, inflammatory bowel disease, and a family history of colorectal cancer. I'm sure you could name a few um, more um, and others, but um, essentially that's how I would categorize them for the exam. 
Yeah, and I guess we need to have a few on the tip of our tongue that we're ready to give as answers. Um, you know, we could probably go on forever about which ones there are, but we just need some that we uh, have on the front of our mind. Um, and and then if we're asked about the adenoma carcinoma sequence, which is a is a common exam question, how, how would you approach that to, to answer that? Yes, I can confirm this is an exam favourite because I got asked this question. Um, so the adenoma carcinoma sequence is a stepwise accumulation of genetic alterations involving the activation of oncogenes and the inactivation of tumour suppressor genes. The key genes involved um, in this sequence are the APC gene, which is a tumour suppressor gene, the Keras gene, which is an oncogene, as well as the P53 gene, which is a tumour suppressor gene. Phenotypically, this results in the transformation of a normal colorectal epithelium um, to an adenomatous polyp and eventually a, an adenocarcinoma. That sounds like a perfect model answer to the exam. Thank you. Um, and in terms of screening these patients, um, there's a bowel screening program available in the UK, is that right? Yep, so we now, the bowel cancer screening program now consists of the FIT test or the fecal immunohistochemistry, and this has replaced the fecal or cord blood testing in many parts of the country. Um, in Scotland, uh, screening is offered um, for people aged um, 50 to 74 years old um, uh, every two yearly, and England, it's 60 to 74 years old um, again every two yearly. thinking about um, someone who you suspect to have colorectal cancer, um, perhaps they've been picked up on the screening program or perhaps they have presented clinically and you are concerned, what uh, investigations would we be thinking about for these patients? Would we be thinking about colonoscopy or is there other things that we should be thinking of first? Yep. So if you assess a patient in your two-week rule clinic, um, you want to do a series of investigations um, in the form of blood tests. So I would include a full blood count, so looking specifically for iron deficiency anemia and to check their baseline renal and liver function. You may consider the use of tumor marker, um, i.e. the CEA, so carcinoembryonic antigen, um, colonoscopy um, with biopsies, um, as well as um, staging investigations in the form of a CT, thorax, abdopelvis, um, plus minus um, MRI scanned um, of specific organs. So for example, MRI liver, um, because the commonest site of metastasis for colorectal cancer is liver. For rectal cancer, additionally, you want to get an MRI of the rectum uh, as well as consideration of an endoscopic ultrasound of the rectum. And which staging classifications should we be aware of? Um, I think in clinical practice currently, we use the TNM staging, um, but the other staging that is um, important to know is Duke staging. So you have Duke A, B, C, and D. Um, Duke A is confined to bowel wall uh, or submucosa. Duke B is penetration beyond the muscularis propria. Duke C is um, involvement of regional limb nodes. And Duke D is the presence of distant metastasis. And I'm sure the um, staging will tell us a little bit about how we can manage the disease going forward. And um, you know, further down the line, we might not be able to um, 
have curative intent, but how would we think about things in terms of uh, curative or palliative approaches for uh, managing colorectal cancer? Yeah, so I think um, you've mentioned sort of, uh, I think, uh, a good way just to be aware of how we manage colorectal cancer, either depending on curative or palliative intent, as well as being aware of the different modalities of treatment that you could offer in the form of surgery, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. So in terms of um, curative surgery, that will be um, uh, a segmental oncologic resection um, with or without lymph node uh, or mesorectal dissectioned um, or it could be a subtotal colectomy. And the other thing you want to think about is whether um, you would um, do a primary anastomosis or whether you would um, bring the bowel out as a stoma. In terms of um, palliative surgery, um, that would be, your options would be a non-curative resection. So for example, if patients present with malignant large bowel obstruction or perforation or bleeding tumour, um, you could consider the functioning colostomy, bypass surgery, or endoscopic stent. Um, the other modalities are chemotherapy and radiotherapy, um, which you could offer in the new adjuvant, adjuvant or palliative uh, setting. Um, radiotherapy, um, my apologies, uh, is mainly confined for rectal cancer, um, so for meet to low rectal cancer and anal cancer and radiotherapy is one of your modality options. I was hoping we would be able to discuss some of the anatomy of the anorectal tract. Um, perhaps if we start with the anatomy of the rectum, um, thinking about its definition and blood supply and um, moving forward, uh, talking about the anal canal as well. Would that be all right? Yeah. Um, so the rectum begins at um, the level of the rectosigmoid junction at S3. So the rectum starts um, where the sigmoid mesentery ends. The rectum is distinct from the rest of the colon in that it does not have any halstra or tinea coli or mental appendices. And its course is marked by two flexures, so the sacral flexure and the anorectal flexure. The rectum is continuous with the anal canal. It passes through the pelvic floor to end as the anus. The blood supply to the rectum um, comes from the superior, middle and inferior rectal arteries. The superior rectal artery comes from the inferior mesenteric artery. The middle rectal artery comes from uh, or is a branch of the internal iliac artery. And lastly, the inferior rectal artery is a branch of the pudendal artery. Moving on to the anus, um, the anal canal is surrounded by internal and external sphincters which maintain continence. The internal anal sphincter surrounds the upper two-third of the anal canal. Um, it's formed from the thickening of the involuntary circular smooth muscle in the bowel wall. The external anal sphincter is a voluntary muscle that surrounds the lower two-thirds of the anal canal, and so it overlaps with the internal sphincter. The external anal sphincter blends superiorly with the puborectalis muscle of the pelvic floor. At the junction of the rectum and the anal canal, there is a muscular ring, and this is known as the anal rectal ring. Um, it's formed by the fusion of the internal anal sphincter 
the external anus sphincter and the puborectalis muscle. And this um, muscular ring is palpable on um, rectal examination. The mucosa of the anal canal is organized into longitudinal folds, so known as anal columns. They are joined at their inferior ends by anal valves. So the anal valves collectively form sort of an irregular circle known as the dentate or pectinate line. Now, the dentate line is an important anatomical sort of landmark for the anus because you get different neurovascular features above and below the dentate line according to the different embryological origin. So the, above the pectinate line or the dentate line, um, it is derived from the embryonic hind gut. So the blood supply comes from superior rectal artery, um, which is a branch of the inferior mesenteric artery, which we know supply hind, the hind gut. Okay? The visceral innervation um, above the pectinate line is via the inferior hypogastric plexus and the lymphatic strains into the internal iliac nodes. Below the pectinate line, um, this is derived from the ectoderm. The blood supply is from the inferior rectal artery. It has somatic innervation rather than visceral innervation. And its somatic innervation is um, via the inferior rectal nerve, which, which is a branch of the pudendal nerve. The lymphatics below the pectinate line drained into the superficial inguinal nodes. So just to recap, Above and below the pectinate line, they differ in terms of their um, nerve innervation, nerve supply, the blood supply, and their lymphatics. Thank you for that fantastic summary, um, including the embryology and the blood supply, uh, as well as the nerve supply. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, moving on to the pathology, uh, I thought we'd talk about anorectal abscesses, as that's something that um, we see quite commonly, especially uh, early trainees as well, and it's quite a common um, condition. Um, could we talk about the, the causes perhaps and which patient groups we tend to see this in most often? Yeah, um, so anorectal abscesses are commonly idiopathic. Um, in fact, 80% of them are, um, and um, the, the pathology behind this is can be explained by the cryptogandular theory, which we'll we'll have a chat about in a bit. Um, Twenty percent of of anorectal abscesses are secondary to other causes, so for example, inflammatory bowel disease, i.e., Crohn's disease, um, secondary to fissures, trauma, and um, immunosuppression. 30% of um, patients with anorectal abscesses will later go on to develop a fistula in anal. And how would you um, define an abscess when we're talking about abscesses? Um, it might seem obvious, but I think we should, it's important to sort of clarify what we mean by that. Yeah, so this is a also a popular sort of short question on the Part B exam. So an abscess is defined as a localised collection of pus surrounded by a pyogenic membrane. And when we're talking specifically about anorectal abscesses, how would we classify them? Um, you could classify anorectal abscesses into um, subcutaneous or 
what we usually see as the perianal abscess, they're mostly subcutaneous, um, intersphinctering abscesses, ischiorectal abscesses, submucosal um, abscesses, as well as supralevator abscesses. Fantastic. Um, and then in terms of how we would manage um, this condition, how would you uh, manage a patient who presented with an anorectal abscess? Yeah, so you would um, clinically assess the patient according to the CRIPS protocol, um, especially in cases of patients with perianal sepsis. Um, so you would go through the um, assessment of airway, breathing, circulation, disability and exposure. We won't go through this again, but I think it's good that you have a format in your mind about how you would um, talk through your A to E assessment. Um, in terms of investigations um, for interactual abscesses, you may consider imaging in the form of an MRI um, scan um, of the rectum if you suspect if it's a compl complex abscess or if it's Crohn's-related. Um, essentially, the management of the abscess would be in the form of an examination under anesthesia of the rectum and an incision and drainage of the abscess. Um, Sometimes you may consider a transrectal drainage um, using um, IR techniques. Um, antibiotics are indicated um, for specific um, sort of contexts um, if the patients have sepsis or if they have surrounding soft tissue infection or if they are immunocompromised. Thank you so much. Um, um, when we're thinking about um, anal disease. Another uh, one that comes around commonly in the exam is fistula in ano. Um, could we talk a little bit about what a fistula is, first of all, and then um, how we would uh, classify it? Yeah. So a fistula is defined as an abnormal communication between two epithelial line surfaces. Um, uh, fistula in ano commonly occur as a secular to anorectal abscesses. So again, um, 30% of patients with anorectal abscesses will go on to develop a fistula. It can be related to Crohn's disease or can be related to um, tuberculosis um, or cancer. And then in terms of how we would classify it? So the classification is um, pretty similar to the classification of anorectal abscesses. Um, I use the mnemonic sites, so S-I-T-E-S, so S for subcutaneous, I for intersphincteric, T for transphincteric, E for extrasphincteric, and S for supralevator fistulas. Uh, and often we talk about Goodsall's rule, um, something that's definitely been explained to me in theatre before. Um, what what would you explain when you if you're talking about Goodsall's rule? What what would that mean? So Goodsall's rule um, is a rule to predict the course taken by the fistula tract based on its external opening in relation to a transverse anal line. So superior to the transverse anal line, um, you would predict that the fistula assumes a straight radial tract to the dentate line. And if it's inferior to the transverse anal line, then the, the fistula would assume a curved course to the posterior midline with an internal opening at six o'clock. Um, sometimes when I um, 
was a junior trainee, I get quite, um, I can get quite confused about what this means. So I think um, if you Google uh, an image of Good Souls Rule and transfers in online, um, it will be quite clear to you. And um, in terms of our investigations and management um, for these, can, what, what would we be thinking about? So, um, in terms of management imaging wise, you may want to consider MRI rectum plus minus an endoenal ultrasound for complex fistula. Um, otherwise, the um, surgical sort of options will depend on the level of the fistula and whether there's any sphincteric involvement. So, your surgical um, procedures can either be a stage procedure or a single procedure. I think the management of fistula can be quite complex, um, but Categorically, you can divide it into a low fistula or a high fistula. So your options for a low fistula will be in the form of a fistulectomy or laying open of the fistula tract. Um, if it's a high fistula with a sphincteric involvement, then your options are um, an insertion of a seton um, or more complex things like um, the lift procedure or advancement flaps. So the other couple of conditions that I wanted to talk about um, in this area that I think come up commonly uh, are anal fissures and hemorrhoids. And I think um, often these can be confusing to trainees and um, in terms of how we manage them, I wanted to talk about that as well. So could we start about with, with anal fissures and how we would define what an anal fissure is and how we would manage it? Uh, yep, so an anal fissure is a mucosal tear within the anal canal um, and it's extremely painful. So the patient will complain of um, pain um, either sometimes after defecation. It's commonly in the posterior midline 6 o'clock um, and anterior midline 12 o'clock. If you have a fissure elsewhere, then you want to think about secondary causes, for example, Crohn's disease. And fissures can be associated with a sentinel skin tag. Um, the management of fissures, again, can be divided into non-operative management and operative management. So in terms of non-operative medical therapy, you would offer a trial of eight weeks. So um, that's in a form of a topical anesthetic gel, um, a topical nitrate, a topical um, calcium channel blocker. You would also advise patients um, in terms of their dietary lifestyles, um, and you also want to ensure that um, they are on regular laxatives to prevent or avoid constipation. The other medical adjunct that you can use is a Botox injection, um, which essentially um, relaxes um, the muscles in that area. In terms of operative management, um, that will be in the form of a lateral internal sphincterotomy, um, which is not commonly performed, um, but is highly effective, um, but it risks um, anal incontinence. And in terms of hemorrhoidal disease, what, what do we need to know about that for the uh, purposes of the exam? Um, so hemorrhoids are abnormal dilatations of the anal vascular cushions. It consists of the anal rectal mucosa, submucosal tissues, and the vascular pedicle. You commonly get hemorrhoids at the three 
7 and 11 o'clock positions. Um, clinically, you can classify hemorrhoids into internal hemorrhoids, um, i.e. above the dentate line or external hemorrhoids below the dentate line. And there are different degrees of prolapse of hemorrhoids that you can um, classify according to. Um, so first degree, second degree, third degree, and fourth degree. So first degree uh, hemorrhoids are non-prolapsing hemorrhoids. Second degree are prolapsing hemorrhoids um, during defecation, um, but you, they are spontaneously reduced. Third degrees are hemorrhoids which prolapse and require manual reduction. Fourth degrees are irreducible or persistently prolapsed hemorrhoids. In terms of management, you would um, do a proctoscopy to confirm the diagnosis, um, as well as consider a colonoscopy to exclude um, concurrent anorectal pathology. The uh, management, again, can be divided into non-operative management and operative management. So non-operatively, you would advise um, dietary sort of um, changes, um, laxatives to avoid constipation, um, Patients may find benefit from over-the-counter creams, for example, like the Anusol cream. In terms of surgical management, this depends on the size and the degree of the prolapse. So for first and second degree um, hemorrhoids, your options are bending or sclerotherapy injections. Um, for second to third degree hemorrhoids, your options can be in the form of HELO, also known as a hemorrhoidal artery ligation, uh, or a transanal hemorrhoid dearterialization. For third to fourth degree hemorrhoids, um, the options would be a hemorrhoidectomy.